0: with over 25 years of experience integrating mental health and spirituality, the author of Reclaiming Authenticity, When Ancestors Weep, and Redeeming the Bereaved. Here is Dr. James Houck. Welcome to Reclaiming Authenticity all dedicated to helping you find your courage to reclaim that which has always been in you. Very excited to be with you here today and every other Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, noon Pacific Standard Time. I am Dr. James Houck, and if you would like more information about me or to leave me your comments about today's show, I want to encourage you to visit the website. It's www.bbsradio.com forward slash reclaiming authenticity that's www.bbsradio.com forward slash reclaiming authenticity and if uh, you're so inclined to want to be part of the show today i always enjoy taking callers Uh, that toll-free line you may call in the second half of the show is 888-627-6008 that's 888-627-6008 And just in case you can't spend the full hour with me, that's okay. Uh, I understand that. uh, But these uh, broadcasts are now podcasted in case you want to go back and listen again. Or you can go back into the archives and listen to previous shows that you might have missed or a uh, topic or a title that has caught your interest. Because uh, now uh, these uh, broadcasts are available for download on Audible. You can listen to them on Audible or iTunes and even Amazon Music. Well, we have certainly had a busy, busy week with Daylight Savings Time over the weekend, and we had elections on Tuesday, and now today is Veterans Day, and I wanted to begin this show with a recognition of Veterans Day here in the United States. Um, I am sure that there are numerous numerous activities that are planned, ceremonies and so forth, and stories that are being shared, and and uh, loved ones uh, just remember. Remembering the veterans who are in their family line uh, and the stories that uh, come from those pictures and so forth. And uh, in other countries like Australia, Canada, and even the United Kingdom, uh, Veterans Day is called Remembrance Day. And um, if you go back into the annals of history, uh, I believe it was uh, over 103 years ago. doing my math right. It was on uh, November 11th, 1919. And that's when then President Woodrow Wilson, he issued uh, a message to the people on the first Armistice Day, in which he expressed what he felt the day meant to many Americans. Now, in his speech, part of his speech, he is quoted saying, to us in America, the reflections of Armistice Day will be filled with solemn pride in the heroism of those who died in the country's service and with gratitude for their victory, both because of the thing from which it has freed us and because of the opportunity it has given America to show her sympathy with peace and justice in the Council of Nations. Well, elsewhere, it's also uh, traditional to read the poem written by one john mccray uh he was one uh that served in world war one he was a canadian uh, lieutenant colonel physician and poet among other things writer and and uh, some would say also just a a wonderful musician and one day while he was taking a well-deserved break in the back of an ambulance, Uh, he penned the words to Flanders Fields. And it is also common to see people on Veterans Day or Remembrance Day to wear a poppy flower on their lapels or their shirts. So in honor of John McCrae and what he had given us in terms of Flanders Fields, I'd like to read this short poem to you. In Flanders Fields, the poppies blow beneath the crosses, row on row, that mark our place and in the sky, the larks, still bravely singing, fly, scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead, short days ago we lived, we felt the dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from falling hands we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though the poppies grow in Flanders fields. Well, as social beings, social creatures, and within the context, the greater context of wars between countries and nations, and even within our own communities, even within our own families, it's often within the context of these relationships that we experience tremendous pain and suffering. And these could be anything from just brutal acts of betrayal and cruelty that somebody has inflicted against us, or vice versa, to simply being in the wrong place at the wrong time. But as a result, Many people bear the scars of a physical or psychological, emotional, and spiritual woundedness. And many people suffer in silence. And let us not remember so much how, on this Veterans Day, this Remembrance Day, uh, let's say how our veterans, our loved ones, or friends died. But rather, let us remember how they lived their lives. What were the lessons? They've taught us or the traditions that they may have passed down to us? What did they show us about their lives regarding their own gifts and graces and skills and personalities and uniqueness that they came into the world with? There's something that I am very fond of this word, hetcheitas. It's a thisness that uh, the Scottish Franciscan uh, John Duns Scotus coined a thisness that everybody has. And that is how everybody ought to be remembered. What is this hacheitas, that thisness? How do they live their lives? What lessons have they passed on to us? And so on and so forth. Well, at any rate, I'll be taking your calls in the second half of the show today. And, and I encourage you to call in because I would really like to get your heart's understanding on today's subject. The tranquility of the soul is discovered in silence. Now, ironically, tranquility is it's not just the absence of sound, but rather uh, tranquility is found in the peace and stillness that emerges even when all around us is chaos and noise, confusion, and even pain. Because I'm sure at one point or another, you've heard the expression, silence is golden. But have you ever stopped to consider exactly what that means? Now, just, you know, a textbook definition of this expression is keeping one's mouth shut is a great virtue, as in, don't tell anyone else about it because silence is golden. And although this precise phrase was first recorded way back in 1848, uh, it's part of a much older proverb where speech is silver, but silence is golden. (laughs) Well, um, you know, sit with that one for a long time and uh, just see what comes up in you. Uh, Because at first thought, it appears that this is very good advice, but it's not a universal truth, because it's not always advantageous to be silent, especially when one has been forced into silence or told not to tell, or threaten to keep quiet or else. And this is one of the aspects that victims are often told by their abusers or oppressors, that if they talk, there will be consequences. And as a result, many people are made to believe that there is no alternative except, well, just to suffer in silence and bear their psychological, emotional, physical, and spiritual pain all by themselves. So how many people suffer in silence? Well, it's not just a cultural expression. Rather, many people who suffer from even mental health illnesses or trauma in silence because they just simply do not know how to put into words the depth of their pain and suffering and relentless misery. Well, my encounters, my understanding, if you will, of, of silence has expanded over the years when I first started into researching intergenerational trauma. And uh, if you were with me here about two weeks ago, you'll recall that I mentioned a phenomenon called total pain, which captures more of a multifactual pain and suffering that people experience. And actually, this was uh, the expression coined by Dame Cicely Saunders and she was the one who championed the hospice movement and ultimately gave us the present-day understanding of palliative care. And she defined this concept of total pain that is the suffering that includes all of a person's physical, psychological, social, spiritual, and practical struggles. But, you know, there's another dimension to humanity's pain that is so deep so intense that even words cannot touch it it's the korean language word that's called han h a n han i mean this word just really takes pain and suffering to depths in which we are just wow we just we don't fully understand but we know it when we've lived it See this word captures a feeling of sorrow, oppression, unavenged injustices, and isolation, and it's kind of hard to really truly explain. And there's not really an American equivalent word, you know, that even comes close to "han," um, because it also expresses this continuous and relentless anguish of a whole people, especially the powerless and vulnerable in society i mean for example um let's say down through history we can find one example after another about uh, another group of people or uh, another group of power comes in and attempts to erase everything you know the language that the people speak the culture that the people express the identity and and how people see themselves well han can also be described as this unfathomable wound. It's a rupture of the soul that's caused by abuse or exploitation, injustice, and violence. And when an aching soul is wounded over and over again and again by external violence, the victims suffer a much deeper ache. You see, the wound produced by such repeated abuse and injustice is often found deep in the depths of the soul. And yet, how many times does our society tend to victimize victims? The people come forward and they want to share their story, but yet they are ridiculed, they're shamed, or they're belittled, or they're, their character is you know, attempted to be assassinated instead of looking for the truth giving voice to the pain and seeking healing, ultimately, especially on both sides, for those who have been the victims, for those who have victimized others. Now, I've also heard it said that Han is a feeling of unresolved resentment against the injustices suffered. It's it's a sense of helplessness because of the overwhelming odds against a person. Or, I like this definition a little bit more. It's a feeling of acute pain in one's guts and bowels, making the whole body writhe and squirm, and an obstinate urge to take revenge and to right the wrong. And it's all of these, all of the above, all of these combined. Like I said, it's very really hard to explain with just one neat little definition. But there's so many facets to Han. There's own, There's so many um, Sides to it, there's so much depth to this unfathomable wound that goes way beyond words. A rupture of the soul caused by abuse, exploitation, injustice, and violence. And when an aching soul is wounded again and again by external violence, the victim or victims suffer a deeper ache. Well, still. Um, You know, there's others out there that would define Han as a mixture of sorrow and resentment, but with tinges of hope within the sadness and anger. And this is what I find, you know, just fascinating about the word Han, that the Korean definition of Han didn't really exist until the Japanese occupation of the Korean Peninsula. And this word became popular to describe the shared suffering of the Korean people under oppression and occupation. And quite frankly, Han isn't something that you can necessarily define, but it is something you can feel. And that's where hope comes in. That yes, is there severe oppression? Yes. Yes, is there severe abuse? Uh Mm-hmm. Yes, it do we, you know, as a society often try to silence people for speaking their truth. (laughs) Yeah, that's been going on ever since day one, probably. But there's this underlying sense of hope. Not some Pollyanna pie in the sky, the sun will come out tomorrow kind of, you know, um, hope. But it's a hope that things will get better. It's a hope that, yeah, death definitely doesn't have the last word that suffering and pain doesn't get the last word. Because simply, suffering and pain is not transformative. Hope is. And that's what people, even in the depths of Han, the mixture of sorrow and resentment, they have hope within their sadness and their anger. And so, like I said, Han isn't something you can necessarily define nice and neat, but it is something that you can feel the Korean feeling of sorrow and oppression and unavenged injustice. It's also an isolation and it hardly, you know, it's hard to truly explain. And you know, pain that's reinforced and with stigma and shame that keeps a person and even many generations to come down in their so called place. That comes very close to Han. The pain that is reinforced and the stigma and the shame from oppressors that keeps a person, and even many generations to come, down and in their so-called place. And yet there's this hope. If you listen closely enough, you can see it in people's eyes. There is this hope that there will come a day. Well, have you ever considered yourself an answer to somebody's prayer? Everybody looks around and says, well, gee, I wish somebody would do something. And it's like, well, who, who's looking back at you in the mirror? You could be the very one. According to your gifts and graces and personalities and strengths and all that, you know, you could very well be the one. Because, you see, instilling hope in other people is very powerful. But it's not a false sense of hope. It's based on a truth. It's based on a transformational experience which people who live their lives in hope have tasted. They've lived it. They've walked it. Nothing else is more transformative than hope. But yet, many people often live their lives in quiet solitude or this hopelessness or despair because they've never been given the permission to express their pain and grief. But we can find comfort in that when we are in a state of suffering that takes us to the point of having no words for it, look out, because it's then that the cry of our soul is heard above all else. There's even a passage in the Bible that reminds us that no matter what level of dimension our pain is, we're never beyond the reach of God's grace, healing, and everlasting love comes straight out of the book of Romans, you know, and, and the Apostle Paul, he writes in the same way, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, helps us in our weaknesses. And sometimes we don't know what to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So even back in biblical times, you know, there's encouragement. And yes, they may not have called it Han, but I believe they they knew exactly that place where pain touches in which we fail to find the words. But we don't have to give up hope because there's a way that even God can understand, even if we lack the words. And there will come a day when we'll be able to put into words our pain and, and maybe even make sense of it. And we're going to find our voice to give permission for others to find their voice. And down through the centuries, society has often displayed a pattern of wanting to silence people and their pain. But you know what? People are being silent no more. Can you say the Me Too movement? Can you hear the anguish in people? People are are not content to be silent and say, well, gee, I guess there's nothing we can do. It's the same old, same old. No. They're raising their voices. People have been made to be quiet long enough. So I encourage you to find your voice and give permission for others to find their voice as well you know one of my uh favorite uh, authors dorothy Soleil, um she i I read a quote of hers i'm just going back a couple decades but uh when i read it it's like that is exactly what i'm talking about here today and she writes that uh, suffering that cannot be expressed is suffering that cannot be healed and people are being empowered to share their stories their pain And their voices to be an advocate for others who have yet to find their voice. Well, as many of you know, I deal in the world of mental health, and uh, I'd like to uh, integrate that with spirituality. And so whenever I come across articles uh, just dealing with this uh, very aspect of how do we give voice to others in the realm of mental health, I'm going to read it. It catches my eye. And uh, came across an article that uh, noted that depression affects nearly 16 million Americans every year. Um, Now, this could be situational depression, like, say, the death of a loved one. Yes, of course, we're going to be depressed. But again, a lot of it's like a clinical depression where you cannot simply put your finger on why you feel the way that you do. That's more of a clinical type depression. And add to that the stigma that's attached to mental illness, and then it makes it become very real. And it causes many people to suffer in silence. And this is very, you know, especially true for men. And I should know because I experienced this firsthand because how often in society, it's just like, okay, guys, you know, get a stiff upper lip, bear up, don't say anything, and just, you know, buck up and keep going. And do you know how many men who develop ulcers and stomach problems as a result? Be empowered to share your story, your pain, and be a voice to be an advocate for others who have yet to find their voice. Because it does take courage to openly talk about others, you know, uh, and to talk to others about your suffering because they may perhaps see you as vulnerable. And generally, it takes a lot of motivation and tolerance to pull through in a period of suffering or hardship. And yet, a lot of people believe that suffering in silence is sustainable. Well, something both psychologists and psychiatrists out there are well aware of is that trauma and silence almost always go hand in hand. It's not easy to talk out loud about the thing that's hurting us or the things that we have experienced in ways in which they've just overpowered us. Um, This is something in which it it just takes time for people to be able to talk about something that has just afflicted them or hurt them uh, very, very deeply. And there are two uh, specific reasons why that trauma and silence almost always go hand in hand. And the first one is that perhaps many people are afraid of being judged, that they can't handle it. Or, you know, and maybe the second reason is, you know, along tied in with it as well. And that's because people don't want to show how they're vulnerable. Because at times in this ruthless world, it's the strong personalities that win, or do they? and the ones that put up with everything and don't complain and instead are models of optimism and self-confidence that's i don't think that's sustainable and, and but it's devastating to realize that in today's world suffering is still considered a stigma i mean for the most part what i've noticed during you know this pandemic which is still going on ironically is that people in general do not like silence. You know, maybe we've gotten used to the noise of everyday life or the hustle and bustle of traffic or even background noise like a radio or TV while we work or while we study or something. Uh, You know, something that distracts us from everyday tasks. Yet, how often do we take advantage of silence? How often do we allow ourselves the time just to sit in silence. Not too many times, I imagine. And yet, how many times do we interpret silence as a bad thing or or something negative? Such as when another person's mad at us. You know, we're going to get that proverbial silent treatment. Or um, if we don't hear back from another person, either by a phone or text or whatever, we automatically think something's wrong. Well, in the second half, of this show, I'd like to talk about some historical examples. When people who have had been made to live or die in silence now have been acknowledged by the authority-type figures, or shall I say now they have been given the permission to speak. And I'm talking about the public apology, because I always have to ask the question, are these times when public apologies are given Are they a means of righting the wrongs of the past, or are they simply a justification of what happened in order to placate those living today into further silence? Well, as I said at the beginning of this show, I'd really love to hear your heart on this matter. So again, if you would like to call in, that number is 888-627-6008, and I'll be taking your calls after the break. Again. You are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity, and I'm your host, Dr. James Houck. Be back with you in one minute. Welcome back. Well, I'm Dr. James Hauk, and you're listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. And uh, what I was talking about in the first half of the broadcast was how many people suffer in silence. I mean, how many people do you know suffer in silence? I mean, uh, this is just not a cultural expression, but rather many people who suffer from either like a mental health illness or trauma often do so in silence because they don't know how to put into words the depth of their pain and suffering and relentless misery. Well, if you are a regular listener to this show, you know that I'm a huge advocate for healing intergenerational trauma. And I've, I've done this in many ways you know i I've, I've done this by interviewing those who continue to suffer from the psychological and emotional traumas of the past i've also done it by educating people on exactly how the soul of a people suffer when intergenerational trauma is covered up or dismissed and also i've been involved in clearing historical sites spiritually clearing historical sites where traumatic energies have kept souls bound for decades, even centuries. And if you would like more information about that, please feel free to shoot me an email. I'll be glad to sit down with you and tell you exactly what that means. Okay. All right. And uh, if you can't wait for that, uh, you know, I just invite you to uh, purchase my book, When Ancestors Weep. And I go into great detail about exactly how I do that and and just heal intergenerational trauma. And um, as I said, you know, what I've discovered is yet another aspect of intergenerational trauma that seems to go hand in hand uh, with the reinforcing of suffering. Down through history in silence, and that is the public apology. Now, you think this wouldn't be the case that an apology often encourages others to break their silence and end their suffering. You know, it's, it's like you know, you're asking for forgiveness, and it's in a way giving people permission that it's now safe to talk about what pain they felt now within recent decades even going back many 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 decades there's been a steady stream of public apologies you know, that have been made on behalf of government or ecclesiastical leaders from the inhumane treatment and sexual abuses and prejudiced behavior and outright slaughter of people from many cultural backgrounds and for me you know I'm all about apologies and forgiveness and restoration. Absolutely. But what makes apologies transformative are three elements. I'm sorry. This is what I did. Please forgive me. And this is what I'm going to do to correct it. Okay? Three elements which turns an apology into something very transformative in the lives of the one who is asking for forgiveness and the one who is extending the forgiveness. I'm sorry because this is what I did. There's the confession, okay? And please forgive me. There's the asking for forgiveness. And this is what I'm going to do to correct it. There's the repentance. Okay, do you hear them? And, you know, repentance involves a change in attitude and behavior that guarantees that the offense will never, ever happen again. Now, the public acknowledgement of such behavior often comes as a result of uncovering crimes against humanity or investigative reporting and or the work of truth commissions, just to name a few. Now, albeit a step in the right direction, some of these public apologies for historical atrocities often include just an air of dismissive justification. Sorry, I couldn't get that out. Include an air of dismissive justification of that's the way the world was back when. Explanation for the mistreatment of people for the greater good of a nation or the world. There is some sort of justification. But in a sense, contemporary leaders often offer an apology for the past without accepting responsibility for doing anything wrong, let alone not acknowledging being part of the current socioeconomic, political, educational, and or religious systems that still perpetuate oppressive schemes. And whether it was the advancement of science, manifest destiny, or the belief to, you know, I have the divine right, violence in one form or another has always been justified against a weaker, undereducated, undercivilized, and or perceived underdeveloped people. And ironically, this rationale for force always seems to come from the perspective of people who use their military might or political power or religious zeal and or outright lust to hang on to their piece of power and control for as long as possible. In fact, history often bears witness to this phenomenon from generation to generation to generation to generation. I mean, just repeatedly, physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual abuses incriminate those who have exploited and manipulated their power for either a worldwide colonization or genocide in countries such as America, Canada, the Congo, Germany, Russia, Rwanda, Ireland, Australia, and in fact, anywhere else, violence and genocide have occurred. Well, on one hand, you know, the public apologies do acknowledge the cruel and inhumane acts done to vulnerable populations. And and such apologies raise a sense of community awareness and also raises a sense of empathy regarding the devastating and intergenerational traumatic effects of the suffering of others. And as we listen and the words of empathy are offered, Many victims and many survivors feel vindicated, and they're grateful for the public voices raised on behalf of those who have yet to find their healing voice. And yet, on the other hand, some public apologies are very superficial and often rejected by the contemporary populations whose ancestors have not only been victimized in such horrors, but the succeeding generations continue to feel that accountability and justice has really never been served. It's have just been placated, like, we're sorry, but there's nothing we can do about it today. That's not good enough. You see, as a result, for many, these apologies and explanations and the offer of a financial compensation only add insult to intergenerational wounds, and in people who continue to feel the sting of that hand being slapped across their face. And here's a good example of that. Okay, um, McEvers in his book recalls a speech made on July tenth, twenty fifteen. Okay, seven years ago. You want a, you want a contemporary example? Here we go. July tenth, twenty seven, or I'm sorry, twenty fifteen that Pope Francis apologized to Bolivia's indigenous leaders for the church's crimes and sins against the native people. And here's what um, the Pope said. He said, And here I wish to be quite quite clear, as was St. John Paul II, I humbly ask forgiveness, not only for the offenses of the church herself, but also for crimes committed against the Native peoples during the so-called conquest of America. Well, although his apology initially was warmly received, many California Native, Native American Indian populations felt betrayed when the same Pope Francis, within two months after this apology, he canonized Father Junipero Serra in Washington, D.C. And despite the fact that he established nine of the 21 missions along the California coast way back in the 1700s, Father Serra had been widely criticized over his physical mistreatment and suppression of Native peoples. And moreover, whereas once hundreds of thousands of California Native American Indians flourished, It was within a hundred years of Father Sarah's arrival, the indigenous population had been decimated to 16,000. Well, perhaps another reason why public apologies often fall short in their effectiveness to bring healing is because of the confusing motivation behind the apologies. I mean, are, are public apologies meant to excuse behavior? Or are public apologies meant to dismiss accountability? Are public apologies able to capture the historical perspective that justifies behavior based on what was considered legal at the time? Or do public apologies simply point out the ethical and moral injustices? Well, from the benefit of hindsight, okay, we might interpret that certain actions were unethical or immoral in their day but nonetheless were permitted because people acted according to Latin term legum terra or the law of the land in other words our public apologies now considered appropriate based on the actions that were considered legal according to the contemporary laws or the laws of those times and here's another good example uh, back in October of 2014, okay, that was eight years ago, um, over in Ireland, uh, the Toome Herald viewpoint newspaper headlined, The Harsh Facts of Life in the 1946 Put Modern Controversies in a Different Perspective. That's mouthful. But the author, Joe Coy, COI, cautioned readers that we simply cannot judge the actions of the past by today's standards. Any assessment of those years has to be taken into account the grinding poverty and lack of resources at the time. And his article was written in response to the controversy that surrounded the discovery of the 796. Okay, that's a key key number here. 796 infants and children that were found buried in an unmarked mass grave in the septic tanks behind the St. Mary's mother and baby home in Chum County, Galway, Ireland. And in response, many people still believe that regardless of the economic times, the mother-baby homes like that in Toome and others were not as affected by poverty or lacked resources as one would think. In fact, most of the domesticated work, such as cooking or Tending vegetable gardens and child reading, rearing, etc., were performed by the young mothers who stayed in the home up to a year after giving birth. And still, regardless of whether we judge the past according to the present or uh, vice versa, how do the issues of accountability need to be addressed? Because if public apologies for past atrocities are simply about matters of justice, then why were injustices not addressed at the time of history they were being committed? Like, why now? After all, many of these atrocities have been committed many, many decades and centuries ago, and the people who took part in such crimes against humanity are deceased, or they're, they're elderly, okay, or they're infirmed. Well, perhaps the answers lie in the fact that society had a bigger role to play in reinforcing the wishes of a leader or a group. Perhaps the systems in place had more to gain than what was considered lost. Well, I wanted to find out the true story myself, so I went over to Ireland, and I interviewed survivors of these Magdalene laundries. And many people explained to me, many women uh, explained to me how the systems kept the, as they said, the mad, the sad, and the bad girls out of sight and in a secret place. They told me they felt betrayed by families when they were sent to these laundries, often carrying the shame of their so-called promiscuous behavior with them. And they were made to wear uniforms and work long hours of heavy physical labor. And if these girls or young women managed to escape, the townsfolk identified them by their uniforms and promptly returned them to one of these laundries. And as I was sitting there uh, over a couple of pints of Guinness, as I was sitting there listening to these stories, and many women wept. They cried. There were no smiles that day. I stopped them. And just a kind gesture, raised my little hand. And I asked, when all this was going on, where were the men? Where were the boyfriends? Where were the fathers? Where were the uncles? Where were the males in society? Because interestingly, none of the men were ever punished or shamed like this. In fact, the men are hardly ever mentioned at all. But you know, several of the women shared with me that sometimes it didn't matter if you had a boyfriend or not. Because your shame was a result of emotional, physical, and or sexual abuse by your brother, your father your uncle, or your priest. And yet, in our search for truth and justice, are we content to single out one person as a scapegoat for atrocities? Or perhaps are we afraid to admit that such crimes had enough community support and oxygen to be fueled for centuries? Were these atrocities merely a breakdown in the system? Or was the system itself faulty to begin with? And let's take this one step further, okay? Why not? Furthermore, do we, living in the 21st century, do we have the resolve to hold our contemporary systems accountable for perpetuating crimes against humanity, regardless of the way things have always done in the, in the past? Especially since there have been many unreported sex trafficking crimes on Native American and Indigenous Canadian reservations. Still, a common phrase that drives such inquiries is well, what did they know? When did they know it? And so forth. You know, regardless of the historical context in which such horrors occurred, It appears that surrounding communities were well aware of these atrocities and passively gave their consent by their silent indifference. And clearly, no one person or group ever involved in crimes against humanity has ever acted alone. Well, let's go back again to something recent. In 2015, there was a movie that came out. It was called Spotlight. And it tells the true story of the Boston Globe's uncovering of the child molestation scandal and cover-up within the local Catholic Archdiocese of Boston. And in one scene, the investigator, uh, Mitchell I uh, hopefully I'm not butchering his name, uh, but he acknowledges the real issue behind the scandal as he looks at his friend, Mr. Resendez, and he says, this city, these people, making the rest of us feel like we don't belong. They're no better than us. Look at how they treat their children. Mark my words, Mr. Resendez, if it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a village to abuse one. And you know, when it was all said and done, 249 priests and brothers uh, were publicly accused of sexual abuse within the Boston Archdiocese. And over 600 stories were published about the scandal. And don't get me started about Altoona. Okay? There's a lot to talk about Altoona, Pennsylvania, Altoona uh, Archdiocese as well. But we'll stick to this one. But, you know, in December 2002, okay, Cardinal Law resigned from the Boston Archdiocese, and and he was reassigned to the Basilica di Santa Maria Maggiore in Rome, one of the highest-ranking Roman Catholic churches in the world. Well, family, government, religious, financial, educational, and socioeconomic systems often form a spider web of deceitfulness. And just like a spider, the corruption of systems know all too well which threads of the web would allow them to move freely and which threads would ensnare a population's prey. I interviewed several women who had survived experiences of neglect, abuse, and pain at the mother-children homes and the Magdalen laundries. And you know, again, as I sat there and as I listened to their stories and their eyewitnesses account, I could not help wonder, not only like, okay, where were the men when all this was going down, but I also could not help wondering what effects these experiences have on a person's soul, let alone the soul of the community. Are we getting close to Han again? I mean, when does reconciliation begin for these women? And when they were allowed to leave these um, mother-children homes and the Magdalene laundries, were the women welcomed back into their families and communities who knew where they had been? Or was the stigma still there? And how do individuals and communities heal from such history now that these institutions no longer exist? I mean, is the horror of the past finally over? Well, when the report of the Commission to Inquire into Child Abuse, also known as the Ryan Report, and it was published in May 20th, 2009, really nobody could have anticipated the public response to the research findings of widespread physical, emotional, and sexual abuse of society's most vulnerable that is, infants, girls, boys, and women in the Irish residential institutions. Well, the executive team provided a summary in their 2,600-page report, and they summarized it here. They listed physical and emotional abuse, as well as the physical and emotional neglect were prominent features of these institutions. And clearly, sexual abuse occurred in the institutions, and this was particularly as so in boys' institutions. Schools were run in a harsh and regimented manner that served to impose unreasonable and oppressive discipline on children and staff alike. Children frequently went hungry, and at it's best the food was inadequate according to the report and it was in- edible and badly prepared in many of the schools now i'm not making this up you can read it for yourself the report of the commission to inquire into child abuse or aka as the ryan report back in may 20 2009 it also went on to you know mention that many witnesses testified to having been constantly fearful, even terrified, and that these feelings impacted on every aspect of their lives in the institution, and so on, and so on, and so on. Now, after this report came out, on one hand, many people breathed a sigh of relief that finally, I mean finally, the stories of thousands of women and children who had been abused in various ways over the past 60 years were becoming known and yet there were many others who were outraged as the report also exposed the decades of collusion that existed between the Irish government and the catholic organizations who ran these institutions because you see previously the government officials had emphatically stated that these institutions were privately owned and operated by vowed religious people and therefore denied any involvement in the mistreatment of adults, children, and babies. But yet, as far back as the 1940s, the Ryan Report highlighted how government inspectors of these Magdalene laundries did nothing to intervene when they confirmed suspicious reports of broken bones, malnourishment, and neglect as a result of random physical beatings, sexual assault, Emotional humiliation of the girls who were forced to live there, and yet still, many people believe that justice for the victims and society survivors would now be finally served. See, and this is about the same time that uh, government leader, you know, Martin McAleese and Edna Kenny, and so others, and other ecclesiastical leaders like Cardinal Sean Brady and the Most Reverend Vincent Nichols, and others well, they were calling for accountability and prosecution for anyone responsible for such abuses. And yet, again, the survivors, their hopes were dashed when it was communicated that the findings in this report would not be used for criminal prosecutions, mainly due to the successful litigation by the individuals to keep their identities unnamed in the report. In fact, no real names, whether of victims or perpetrators, appear in the final document. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's been an interesting show. The more we know, the more we learn, do we? I want to leave you with a quote from Edmund Burke. But those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. I'm Dr. James Houck, and you've been listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. Again, if you would like to download this um, broadcast, feel free to get on the website, and you'll be able to see where it's archived. Or, you know, feel free to shoot me an email and uh, let me know what you think about this uh, show and others. Until uh, we talk again, may everybody be safe, may everybody behave themselves, and by all means, may everybody be a scholar and a student of history. Take care. For an answer, or just to leave a thousand comments... Or prodding to buy a book by Dr. Hauk. It's all there. Just wander on over to reclaimingauthenticity.com and click around. And we'll see you next Friday at noon Pacific time on PBS Radio TV.